HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Jerkel, here today with the notorious J.J. Good. Hey. How's it going? Uh, it's going great, That's not Michael. really a, a thing, a notorious person. Hey, I'm notorious. Hey. hey how's it going? Hey, stop it. <laughs> it's J.J. Good, G-O-O-D-E. Yeah. Is that like the food scene where I spell it S-E-E-N? Is it some kind of pun? I or think <laughs> I think if, if if the people at Ellis Island were making puns, then, yeah. then maybe. <laughs> oh, they were. No, they were just playing, what is that called? XOXO. Uh, um, Tic-tac-toe? Yeah, tic-tac-toe <laughs> the whole time. That's all they were doing. Yeah. So let's get to the meat of this. Um, you have a nice radio voice. Thank you. I try. <laughs> I know you know me in real life, not that this is not real. It sounds like you, but it just sounds like just a little melodious. More, yeah. It has some meter, some yeah. cadence to it. Yeah. We'll dissect that. Okay. <laughs> Good. It feels like my, my career has come full circle being able to have you here because my first actual job in New York as a photographer was spending a day with you inside oh BLT Fish oh my God. for its opening for uh, a magazine. I think that only printed one issue called Crave. Right. That was my first real job in the in the industry as well. So we, we started each other off, we pushed did. each other I in remember that. polar directions and somehow orbited around and found <laughs> each other again. I knew, I, I knew I'd find you again. Yeah, yeah. You, were, you seemed like a good one. <laughs> decent, decent. Yeah. But, you know, your, your interest in food didn't just happen, you know, overnight. You, you kind of climbed your way um, through many different facets. I know you interned at eGullet, oh, uh, yeah. fact-checked at Severe Magazine. You know, wrote pieces personally about your cooking experience, and now you get to collaborate with some of the top chefs in the country. How did this all happen? <laughs> well, well, I, th- I mean, I think, I think part of it is I got lucky um, in that I was in college, um, kind of right when 
I was a junior in college right when the, the food became kind of like a newly cool thing. Um, I think the Food Network was just getting off the ground or people were just becoming interested in like chefs as celebrities, chefs as people to, you know, hold hold their interest. Um, so when I did decide to do it, it wasn't like now today, it's, I think it's a lot, a lot of people want to be involved in food. Um, but at the time it was sort of like, what the hell am I doing? My, my now father-in-law was like very skeptical of this. He's like, really, you're interested in what in <laughs> food? And I didn't even know what food running meant. I thought, I don't, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I thought it was, you know, journalism, really intense of journalism. I thought it was like restaurant reviews. I didn't really know even what food writing was, but I knew I wanted to be involved in food and I knew I couldn't cook very well. And I knew no one would hire me in a kitchen, or at least I thought I probably had a low chance of being hired in the kitchen I mean, what for was many your, reasons. What was your food background prior to that? I mean, you grew up in New Jersey. Oh yeah. The state known for X. Oh, deep fried hot dogs. Deep fried hot dogs. Deep fried hot dogs. Did not know that. The Ripper. Ripper. It's when you fry a hot dog for long enough until it bursts open. So you can put that. <laughs> so you can put that on your resume when you try to apply for food jobs. Yes, I know all about the Ripper and the Cremator, which is when you fry it until it like starts to get black. So it's all hot dog related. It's mostly hot dog related. <laughs> but growing up in New Jersey, was there a big interest in food in your household outside? Yeah, in a way. I mean, my my parents loved food. Um, my mom loved. Um, bagels and lox and sturgeon and and sable and stuff like that pickles and olives um and that was like felt very new and kind of exotic and exciting to me um so she would come back you know she she would come back from the city um with like you know zabar's bags and um that felt like a really special thing i didn't really know what this stuff was but i knew she like went all the way to the city to get this stuff and it was like super salty and oily and awesome so she's she sort of pushed me along in that way. And then my, my dad loves food. He loves all sorts of strange things. He likes eating strange animals, or at least he did back in the day. You see, he claims to have eaten tiger in a can when he was little. I don't know if that's true, but... In, in, in New Jersey. In New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, well, the home of, home of tiger in a can. Yeah, yeah. They probably process it in yeah, New Jersey. Yeah, right next actually. to the cremator. Yeah. <laughs> but, but... Go ahead. Oh, yeah, but... Um, but, I mean, really, I was just really, really, really interested in Kraft Macaroni and Cheese and Celeste Pizzas. Sauce pizza was the best. In the in the toaster oven, you put it in the toaster oven. Oof. Zesty four cheese. Zesty four cheese? Zesty four cheese and Kraft macaroni and cheese spirals were my thing. And I would I would like every time I would try to perfect the macaroni and cheese spirals. I liked it when the, the cheese powder clumped up a little bit, but not too much. It had to be a little liquidy, but like there still had to be some clumps of like salty cheese powder. So you already had an idea of what you liked and how you liked it. You know, that that there were even iterations within yes. the world of mac and kind cheese. Kind of, yeah. Kind of. Or that you just weren't that great at emulsifying the cheese powder. And right. You learned to love the bomb, as they say. Love the bomb? Yeah. What's the bomb? Like that Peter Sellers movie, you know, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. I did learn to love yeah, the bomb. Yeah, yeah. I went to, to French restaurants, too. They, they would occasionally take me to French restaurants, and and I thought that was really... I was like a little kid, and I would I, I learned if you like ordered sweetbreads, the waiter would like like perk up and he'd be like oh ho, ho, or, or that's offensive yeah. um, but he would he would get he would be impressed by a little kid who's like into sweetbreads or into like liver and i think i like kind of thrived on that i was like enjoyed the reaction i got and then i just came to like some of that stuff yeah so did you initially like sweetbreads liver 
I don't know. I think I ate it, and I think honestly, I think it was like so cool to see like my parents or the waiter or like whoever my parents' friends were who came with, to dinner with us, being like, "Oh my god, you like sweetbreads?" And I was like, "Oh, I guess so." It just feels really good to like sweetbreads because everybody's giving me this attention. Do, do you have, <laughs> do you have that same sentiment about you know going to Thailand, going to Mexico, finding these new foods, and then ordering them on your own and having that same reaction? Yeah, I mean when you when I. Some, sometimes some of this food or some of the food I've had in, in Thailand especially in Mexico um, in some cases is so different than what I'm used to or, or what we're used to in the US that you don't really know whether to like it right away you don't know what you f- how you feel about it it's really intense, it's really bitter a lot of the food in Thailand um, that I've had that's really like blown my mind has been really really bitter and that's obviously not something that we tend to like I mean we like dandelion greens and broccoli raw but this is like we like negronis now negronis we like negronis now but this is like real bitter yeah like it hurts a little bit bitter and and uh bile uh stomach i guess stomach bile it's like sweet and sweet and bitter at the same time and you taste it you're like i really don't know what i'm not your own i I haven't tasted my own yet yeah (laughs) (laughs) like that guy who like fried up his own wiener no i haven't done that oh no okay No. no i haven't done that yet that's wow. <laughs> Not much stops me on the show, but that that I'm going to log away for a, a future cur- subject for yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah, curiosity. You can invite him on. I, can I? I think is he, an artist. He oh, still he actually can. made is it through still, that experience. Is he still in one piece? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I mentioned Thailand because you've been able to collaborate with Andy Ricker of Pock Pock fame, Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon, now here in New York as well. You've worked with April Bloomfield of Spotted Pig. Uh, you've worked with Roberto Santibanez of Fonda. Oh, yeah. Uh, you and I collaborated with Mr. Aron Sanchez. Oh, yeah. You got your Could start with forget. Morimoto, and now you're working with Dale Talde and so much more. How is it to work with a chef? You are your own person, but how do you, you know, band together? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, when I first started uh, writing about food i thought that i wanted to be i wanted to like express my own opinions about food and 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 i think i got really tired of that really quickly because as we just talked about i'm basically just a kid from new jersey who like likes eating things yeah like you're all my, too modest I've, interest, I've read so many interviews with you and everyone at the end says stop being so modest i don't know i don't think it's modesty it's just it's true like i i thought i was i thought i wanted to do like journalism i thought like you know, when I was getting into food, it was like Michael Pollan. I think that Michael Pollan's big book came out, um, the Voice Dilemma. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, everybody's talking about this. It sounds so important. But I just, I don't have the skill, the attention, the anything to do anything like that. And it's not, it's just not my interest. Like, thank God there are people out there doing that. But I just really do just like eating. I'm also not like, I, I do writing stuff, but I'm not like one of those like writer, like, you know, I get up in the morning and all I want to do is write. It's like, I could give take or leave writing you know <laughs> if i didn't have to write yeah maybe i wouldn't write but i do really love being involved in food and i love helping people who are so skilled and so knowledgeable help get their points across and help express what they want to express and it's almost liberating it's liberating to do it it's gratifying to do it and then i get to eat yeah eat their eat whatever they're cooking well let's talk about being that mediator that liaison what were some of your first jobs that you were collaborating good question I mean in some ways I mean this is in some ways like I've never felt like a journalist when I was writing 
food stuff. So when I interviewed someone for a fun, silly food feature thing, I was never trying to like get at them. I was never trying to make them say anything controversial. Muckrake. No muckraking. Just you know, a lot of a lot of food writing is just purely promotional. Sometimes it almost feels like you know advertorial, um, and I think sometimes that's wrong. Um, but sometimes it's it's right. You're not. I'm not trying to take the piss out of some chef who's just wants to talk about his like sea urchin sandwich or something you know it's just fun like so um i felt like those early early articles could could be seen as like a collaboration like just um you you know you're sitting there interviewing the guy and you're just hoping he says something that's really like a great quote um and the only difference now is that i can say you know hey april like i need a like talk about sea urchin and like be funny and like and then you just chat for a while and then hopefully you say something you don't have to ask these you don't have to ask questions hoping they'll say something like a like a faux journalist yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm really actually glad you brought up the word advertorial because uh-huh. you you were what, what was your role with e-gullet for a while i think you were on the forums moderating so oh people God, weren't so creating advertorials oh yeah i guess so yeah um e-gullet was the uh, uh, early food discussion forum um, and they had a like a little kind of web magazine. Super early adopters of that whole like they were like right around the time of Chowhound. Okay, and um, and the um, and I I asked this uh, this I kind of emailed them out of the blue and asked this guy Stephen Shaw who uh, sadly passed away recently. He was a really really wonderful guy. Um, started the site. Really genuine, generous guy. Um, I asked him if I could be there an intern and he emailed me back and he was like uh we don't really have interns because we don't really have employees it was just like a bunch of guys who knew the web and wanted to do the site so so i was charged with um kind of moderating these forums and as you said making sure people weren't just kind of shilling for their own brands and for their own restaurants and making sure people didn't get into fights because people would always get into fights because you know people who post on the internet a lot tend to get into fights um, and I was just like this kid. I was like 19 or 20 at the time. And I had to kind of affect this authority and be like, now, guys, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm the moderator here. And that actually was great practice writing. That was like my first real writing was was kind of pretending as a 20, 20 year old that I was a, a, a someone with authority. And like, you know, the only way you can do that is to is to make sure your sentences are sentences and they're grammatical and they're not typos and they you know you're making arguments and so it was like that was my really that was really my first writing gig even though so uh, in making arguments too because of how eagle was set up there were these threads oh, yeah. so you'd watch a conversation evolve you know or you know fall Devolve. into yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you'd see these ideas be thrown out and a whole community come and you know usually elaborate on that um is that kind of how you interact with chefs now? I feel like it's informed a lot of people in how to ask questions or, you know, what questions to ask. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, the best for me, the best way to, to, to get information out of chefs is, is not to ask them questions while they're sitting in a chair. Um, they really, you know, there, there's, there's a reason they became chefs and there's a reason they, you know, work in kitchens and not in an office and sitting them down and it doesn't, ever work um so the best way that i found to do it is to uh have them cook something or have them do something and then all the all the detail that they might not think about 
um, kind of comes out and then you can ask them, oh, why are you doing that with your hands? And they're like, oh, well, because you got to do that with your hands when you're doing blank. And I'm like, why? And then the conversation uh, sort of develops from there. Um, yeah. So talk about, you know, a couple of those first instances where you watched a chef cook a dish in front of you and, you know, what questions you might have asked them. Well, I think the, one of the first projects I worked on where I was really watching uh, the cooking process a lot was with Roberto, Roberto Santibanez, who is one of my favorite people in the world. Um, he, and I didn't, I didn't really know at that point in doing cookbooks that I was, that I could gain anything from watching the chef. You know, I was like, oh, they have their recipes and I'm sure their recipes are work because their chefs are chefs. And, um, and I told Roberto, I think I admitted to him that I don't know how to, I've never seen someone make a tortilla, which to a Mexican, a guy from Mexico city is like saying you've never seen the sky or something. <laughs> so he's like, what? He could, he literally couldn't believe me. So he, he like forced me to sit and watch him make tortillas, which is obviously awesome and was super fun. And the whole process is just, it's, it looks so simple. Of course, when you watch someone who's practiced do something, it looks really simple, but the little details were just a mystery. And then when I finally went to try to write, you know, write the recipe and to try to, to, to look at his recipe and to add the little details that, that would enable someone like me, who's not a, a skilled cook or not an experienced cook to, to do it. I just asking him those questions and seeing those little details was so essential in, in writing a recipe that people could actually use. And what, what were those, what was that minutia? Oh, um, the, the, even things like the, he's like, oh, of course we have to add water right now because as you can see, the dough is not moist enough. And I was like, what? What do you mean? And he adds like the tiniest bit of water. I'm like, okay, so the dough, first of all, dough doesn't like look moist unless it's like a puddle to me. So I was like, I don't understand what you mean. It looks moist. And he's like, oh, you can see it. And then you see, look really closely and you're like, oh, you can kind of see it. It's kind of, it's kind of crumbly a little in parts. And then he adds the tiny bit of water and you're like, how could that make a difference? And then he, you know, massages it in and then shows you again. He's like, see how it's a little glossy, a little tacky. And when you rub it, some of it comes a little bit comes off in your finger. You're like, oh, like those little details that when you're at home sitting there with water and some dried masa, you're like, and you're, you're, you have no idea what you're doing. You just kind of follow a recipe blindly. Those little things that can, that can, you know, take the recipe from something that's okay to something that's really, really good. And I mean, aside from these visual cues, you have tactile cues too. Like you said, do you get to touch the food? Do you get to experience making it with these chefs? Yeah. Oh, touching the food. I always want to poke at things and they <laughs> hate that, you know, cause they're like doing their thing and, and it's so obvious to them. And I always want to like, I'm always taking pictures and video of the simplest, stupidest thing. I mean, they think I'm crazy, I think, or at least when I start working with them by the end, they're used to it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm constantly poking and, and especially with, especially with dough, I, I just don't understand dough. I don't understand how, like there has to, there, someday someone will come up with a cookbook that has nothing to do with words and it's just like, you know, all video all the time. I mean, I know probably people have done yes. this. I'm not very good on the old computer or on the phone, but, um, but it's just, it's so hard to write some of this stuff down and sometimes you see it and it makes sense immediately. Um, the, you know, when dough springs back and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's things that professionals take for granted, but you're, you're writing for a wider audience. And right. I know I'm, I'm in the middle of a cookbook project myself, and we were talking about the windowpane test. What's the windowpane test? It's, it's when you actually stretch your glutens to a point where you can see through them, oh. um, and you can see through them without them breaking. 
So it's it's a bread baking technique, but you know, again, bread bakers take that for granted. Whereas you say window pane test without explaining it, 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 it's just an assumption then, but it's not a given. Right. So he would say that he would say, yeah, okay, just do the window pane test. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what the yeah. fuck are you talking? But about? luckily, like I, I know that enough. But still, the the first time I ever stretched dough and got to that point, I didn't know what it was called. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that's what I was looking for. Right. You know, I just knew it felt right in my hands. But there are so many visual, tactile, even you know, sensory cues that inform you on how to right. write about these things. Right. And some of them don't make sense. And some of them, they make so much sense to the people telling you. And then, to me, they just don't. I think being dense is, like, a really helpful thing. Um, being just dense enough. You know, you don't want to be so... You, don't, you want to be knowledgeable enough. So if I hear... Now now if I hear the, someone say the window pane test, I can pretend like I heard of it. <laughs> but, you listen to this uh, program yeah, again. Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, you want, to, you want to be able to recognize that, oh, the window pane test, oh, he's probably talking about this, and then ask them more questions so you're not just relying on these kind of things that get passed along. You know, there's some words in, in cooking that, you know, uh, crimping, crimping. I, 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 understand, I understand what it means, and I guess I could just, like, go to a YouTube video and say, how do you crimp? But I, it doesn't mean anything to me. I need someone to say what that means. Oh, I thought it was that dance. Oh, cr- crumping. Yeah, crumping, no. <laughs> oh, Michael. <laughs> Oh, me. And on that, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll crumb. And we will crumb. (laughs) You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I'm Phil Colicchio, the host of the business of the business here on the Heritage Radio Network. And this summer, we are turning five. The Heritage Radio Network is five years old. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else in this business. And we need, and when I say need, I mean need, your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. And that means we depend upon the support of listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on this radio station, the Heritage Radio Network, please visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. You got to be economically sustainable. Help us out. Thanks. Bye. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Hi, I'm Reggie Watson. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Again, your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Woo! Here. Woo! Oh, that was the best reception <laughs> in my almost 200 shows I've ever had. <laughs> Thank you for that. JJ Good with an E. Of course. You are the one that actually reminded me to remind all the listeners out there to donate to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're actually in the middle of our summer membership drive. So go to our website. That's HeritageRadioNetwork.org backslash donate. Check out how to become a member. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. And we look to the support of our listeners and guests alike. So I'm looking at you, JJ. You are too intently. (laughs) I am. I'm sneering a little bit. That was after our crumping session. Okay. (laughs) But getting back to you, since this is a show about you. Oh, boy. 
traveling the world, Mexico, Thailand, you know, talk about cooking in you know, a, a cook's kitchen at their restaurant. What is it like to go out yonder and <laughs> eat and experience food with chefs? Talk to me about Andy Ricker. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andy, oh, yeah, there's, there could be no better guide to, to eating in Thailand ever. Um, and it's just so amazing to, to, you know, to go. I've never, I've never been to Thailand as a tourist. Um, I mean, I, of course, I'm technically a tourist, but I've only been to Thailand with Andy um, three times. And I just, I think all the time about what my experience would have been like if I had no guide and how difficult it is to, to kind of wrap your head around the food and you really you don't know what you're eating at all. It, it bears absolutely no resemblance to the Thai food we're used to, um, in that even even the dish even dishes of the same name don't bear any resemblance. Such as so, um, what's a what's a what's a good example? Oh, pad ki mao. Pad ki mao is like this um, the the probably most ubiquitous. It's called you know what do they say? Drunken noodles, drunkards noodles. It's that kind of like spicy noodley dish in the U.S. Right. And I was like, oh, of course I'll, I'll see that in Thailand. Of course you do see that in Thailand. But the, the real thing, the, or the, the, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but some people would say the, like, original dish has no noodles at all. So how can a dish called Pat Ki Mao, which we translate as drunken noodles, even though I guess in the title of, the Thai title of the dish, there's no mention of noodles. It just means drunk man stir fry. But how come, how come everywhere in the U.S. Th- this dish has noodles? And in Thailand... Um, at these restaurants that have been serving it for 50-odd years, there are no noodles. I don't get it. So you don't get it. I, so I still, it's, it's, it's rhetoric still. We still don't, yeah. yeah, we still don't get it. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, well, it's actually on page 182 of the Pop Pop <laughs> Cookbook. Well, maybe it will be. Yeah. Now, we're, Andy and I are working on a, a new one on drinking food. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a food that people do like to eat when they're drinking, so we're, we're hoping to solve the mystery yeah. in some way. Well, what, what food do you like to drink with Andy? Well... I mean, eat with eat Andy with while Andy? drinking. Oh, um, lop. I still can't say that say, right. Say that again. Lop. We're going to have him critique this. Oh, my God. Because lop. what is lop? lop? Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the thing that's translated as larb in the U.S., um, and it has two main variations. It's this, it's this kind of chopped meat salad, even though salad's like probably the worst description to, of it, even though it's on all the men, you know, every menu in the U.S. will say, oh, chopped meat salad. You're like, oh, that sounds gross. Um, but it's chopped meat and all sorts of delicious things in the northeast of Thailand in Isan. It tends to have it tends to be very limey and um, there's lots of fresh herbs and shallots and toasted rice powder and chilies, of course, dried chilies, um, and then and sometimes fresh chilies. And then in the north, um, and I didn't know there was a difference between the northeast and the north until I met Andy. Um, it, they serve it, and it's like a totally different dish. Like this this dish of the same name within Thailand, totally different dish. It's like ground meat. My minced meat cooked with all sorts of dried spices that you don't associate with Thailand or that I don't associate with Thailand. Um, lots of things like, I think, like cumin and coriander um, and fried shallots and fried garlic and, and another, you know, other varieties of herbs, not, not the typical um, mint. There's no mint in that one, I don't think. Um, so it's just a, a totally different dish. And then here, it's, it's a totally different dish because it tastes totally different. You know, it's like, so there's... The lop is so common here, and then you have several versions in Thailand, and none of them, none of the three taste anything alike. I mean, so it's then how confusing. does how does that inform your cooking? 
knowing that there are so many different versions of something, but you're trying to cook a specific recipe. Do you, do you deviate sometimes? Well, for, it's 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 hard. It's like making me conflicted. It's like part of me just it's it's kind of liberating and thinking like, oh, you know, there's no there's no authentic food, right? You know, food changes. It constantly changes and evolves and. You know, if you're going to try to make lop in your kitchen, then and you're using the ingredients that you have, you're doing the same thing that Thai cooks have done for years and years and years. When they moved to America, they used different ingredients, the ingredients they could, and tried to recreate the flavors that they knew. Um, but then part of me is like, well, if you if you're trying to if you are trying to like make a particular kind of lop, you shouldn't deviate from someone's recipe because you're so new to the cuisine, you're so new to the dish that if you deviate at all, you're you're really changing the dish so much that you're making another dish entirely so you you might as well not it's like uh it's like uh it's like pizza it's like chicago deep dish pizza it's not pizza it's a casserole you know you watch that john stewart oh no oh it's amazing does he does he talk about the casserole i think pizza casserole? i think to a point i think he calls it tomato soup in a tomato bread bowl soup. Well, that's way better <laughs> but to a point where i think he actually had to officially apologize to chicago deep dish pizza joints oh dear i mean it was it was, it was like libelous it was wonderful <laughs> i mean it, it was one of the best things i've seen but there is that debate that you know belies on what authenticity is right and then you have a subject like dale talde right who has such a an you know, fusion is not a terrible word. It's, it's not like calling someone a derogatory name. Right. But fusion feels, you know, dirty sometimes. Right. Feels wrong. But he, he has fused so many different experiences and cuisines in his eponymously named Talde restaurant right. here in Brooklyn. Yeah. What is working with him like? He, he's, he's like the, the polar opposite of Andy um, in that Andy is so – you know, what Andy does is it, he basically – tries to recreate particular dishes that he's eaten in Thailand that he loves. Or, you know, he kind of creates composites of several different versions of, say, khao soy, this curry noodle soup from, from the north of Thailand, Chiang Mai. Um, and he picks his favorite versions of each and presents it. And it's like, it's like khao soy. It's, it's exact, you know, it, can, it, ten, it tastes exactly like khao soy you've had, you will have in Chiang Mai. Whereas Dale, and so Andy never creates anything, whereas Dale is constantly creating and having fun and creating things that have never existed before like like roast chicken dinner ramen like but they make perfect sense you know it's like it's totally inauthentic he would never claim that anything he does is authentic but it, it's authentic to his experience which is you know he, he grew up he, he's a filipino immigrant um he grew up um in the u.s and he, his american to him american food is both ramen because he ate ramen and it's you know roast chicken dinner with like thyme and sage and rosemary because that's what he ate and he why well, like when you're not an american when those two things don't seem so weird you just smash them together and it makes it makes sense but, but you it, see influx of the filipino too like lumpia adobo those, right those ideas come in and is that you know research after he got the foundation of cooking or was that instilled in his childhood well he i mean he, he he's an interesting guy he he grew up cooking Oh, and he grew up uh, eating Filipino food at home. His mom would cook Filipino food, like straight up, just Filipino food. She like did not want them to have fast food wisely. She was like a prescient person. Um, did not want them to have fast food and kind of looked down on, on, you know, like subs and tacos and stuff like that. But he, this just made him want that stuff more. So he like, he, he, and, he's, and then he's French trained. So he grew up eating Filipino food. He grew up loving McDonald's and, uh, you know, 
I think he loves every, all fast food except for Taco Bell. He loved Pizza Hut. Um, he liked he he rhapsodizes about Pizza Hut like when you used to go back in the day when you could sit down at a Pizza Hut and you could you know smell the the garlicky oregano-y tomato sauce and, salad bar oh, they had a salad bar it's nice yeah. but but uh, so he and then he was he was like super duper French trained so he's just this all, and all those things converge in his food I mean he serves his version of McDonald's chicken nuggets at one of his restaurants pork at pork slope and they're so so good rice flour batter marinated in hot sauce and yogurt he makes the you know makes the honey mustard he makes the barbecue sauce and i think he might in in homage to mcdonald's just do like a simple like asian chili sauce from a bottle because yeah. it's really good i mean the way you talk about all these people is so endearing do you have to like a person <laughs> to work with them it certainly you seems like it helps <laughs> it does i mean it's it, i feel like if you work with someone and for for you know these projects take a long time um, the publishing process is slow. So I end up working with these people for like two years. Um, it's really hard to work with someone for two years if you're not, if you don't like them. Um, and so sometimes, I mean, the few we've mentioned, I just adore them as people and, and I love working with them. But, you know, there's some people that are harder to work with. But I think like the only way I can get through it is to is to like try to like them and try to find the parts I like about them. I mean, I haven't worked with any bad people. You know, everybody's a good person. With Andy, another book is in the works. I know you're working with April again. Oh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about her personality and how you guys jive. Oh, yeah, we, we jive really well. Yeah. Um, she is, she, her food is very, very particular. Um, it's like the perfect model. It's like, it's kind of my favorite. It's, it's like the food that I really like working with, a chef who cooks her kind of food. Because it really relies on the little, little details. I mean, if, if she, you know, she could, even something like simple, like sauteing onions. Like, if she wrote the recipe down, she'd be like, okay, yes, you know, you start by sauteing some onions. It was like, okay. But then you watch her do it, and she's doing something totally different or interesting, or she's being particularly mindful of the onions, or she's um, starting them on high, adding salt, lowering the heat, and covering them, cooking them covered. And it's just and they become all like soft and creamy like she just every she'll make the simplest stuff but the little details make it like so so good the way she like scrunches the salad at the right before serving it the way she um i don't know the way she tends to the fennel in the pan like the way she bastes everything i want i want you to turn that into a love song someday (laughs) (laughs) the way she yeah yeah the way she (laughs) i can see it very holland oats esque but i'd love to see like this flow chart of idiosyncrasy you know in idiosyncratic behavior between all these chefs and you know see see what's linear and what's not you know how somebody as it sounds sautés or brûlés an onion how somebody you know um serves a salad i I think Mm -hmm. it'd be like a really interesting contrast compare because a lot of a lot of them came from some sort of cooking school some sort of formal training right and then i guess and then where where the wheels fall off where the wheels fall (laughs) off i wonder i mean i I guess when you get to a certain level you start you know breaking rules when chefs are you're when the head chef is no longer telling you you have to do it a certain way maybe you start saying do i really have to do it that way that's why i like cooking at home because then you can ask you sort of ask yourself that question like do i really have to do it that way Although I, I I would suggest trusting, I you know some people are super skeptical of recipes because they're like I'm not going to get that ingredient. But the best cookbooks um, will will sort of take you to a place that you couldn't get yourself. You know even even good good home cooks, um, 
you know, if you try, try, if you try like April's, I don't know, radish salad, just radishes and cheese and lemon and basil, basically, and olive oil. Um, but you make it in her way, with her technique, her simple technique of smushing the basil and Parmesan against the radishes. And it doesn't sound like it would make a difference, but it just does. I want to finish by cooking at home. This is in two parts because I also want to mention radial asplasia. Is that is that radial how, aplasia? Aplasia. Uh-huh. Because you you cook sounds at, delicious, right? Doesn't it? Yeah, you should make a dish out of that. <laughs> but you know, you cook at home, um, but you're at I'd hate to call it a disadvantage because it's not because I see where you are in your career <laughs> and what you've done, and if anything, you know it's it's been that much more of an achievement. Uh, for you to accomplish everything. But what is radio, radial? Radio? Well, radio aplasia is not <laughs> is being able radio? to be on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> radial aplasia is, I guess, whatever whatever the doctors called um, my, my being born with a, a smaller, funny-looking right arm. Um, so I have this right arm that's like kind of useful sometimes. It's kind of like a coat hook. It's kind of like a little coat hook. Like I'll hang bags on it or like I'll hang my coat on it. Um, and sometimes it can kind of like sort of steady a carrot on the cutting board, but I, but it's not very helpful. So I, so I'm kind of cooking with one hand. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not always fun. It's kind of, it's kind of, you know, I have to like bend, I have to like hunch over to cook everything, to steady whatever I'm cooking, to steady whatever I'm cutting. And if it's like chicken, I'm like basically like nuzzling the raw chicken. I'm like nose to nose with the raw (laughs) chicken. Um, but but yeah, it, it it it's it's it is what it is. I've been I was born with it, so I I know how to deal with it. Yeah, you know, and the funny thing is, you talk about onions, something mm-hmm. as simple as that, and how April you know works with an onion. How you work with an onion may be in a recipe someday, and someone be like, "That's a fascinating," you know. <laughs> but if you think of it in that way, are you saying I should write recipes, assuming people have? One left arm. Well, and one you know, tiny right we, arm. we've pseudo talked about the idea of you writing a cookbook for um, women who just had children. Right. Oh, right. Well, yeah. there's there are two books in, on the market called One Armed Cooking, and one is one is for women who just had children or like stirring the pot with one arm, which is probably not a good idea, <laughs> especially if they're deep frying. Yeah. And there's another for um, people who want to drink while they're cooking. It was like post World War II, and they were trying to get people back in the kitchen. And you have this guy on the back cover holding a beer and stirring. So yeah. Cooking with one arm. Yeah, no, I can see you in, in the latter. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to end with a couple of one-arm zingers, just to lighten the light. Hi-oh. <laughs> what did I write on the website? Oh, it was today? really good. Um, upper hand. Upper hand. Yeah. Upper hand. It's like Buster yeah. in Rust Development. Because I'll admit to you, the first time that we met, it's obviously obvious. <laughs> it's obvious. And in no time in my life had I ever said these things before. But I think the kitchen staff thought I was choking at a point. Uh-huh. Because choking? Or yeah, choking? choking. Oh, dear. Yeah, because you were writing really quickly. And I'm like, wow, you write a lot. You should develop some kind of short arm, shorthand. <laughs> and then did one of these <clears throat>, laughs and had to walk out of the kitchen. I'm like, why did that come out of my mouth? <laughs> Well, that's it. It was it was in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah it's, unco- it's it makes people uncomfortable. I think yeah. a little bit in the yeah. beginning, because because yeah, I do this, this. I do the same thing when I, someone's in a wheelchair. I like I'm terrified of making like wheel, you know, wheelie jokes yeah. or something like that. It's eh, it's a <laughs> it's what it is. But then you know you talk about your relationship with these chefs and that all aside, y- you are one of the kindest, nicest, endearing people I know. 
Um, oh, Michael. And it, it, it's true. <laughs> but it comes through not only in your writing, but how you choose projects, how you choose to work on those projects, you know, be it process, protocol, or less technical terms. Uh-huh. The way you carry yourself through, you know, all these things is similar to how you carry yourself in life. Mm. But, you know, how how should a person approach, you know, projects, life, cookbooks? Because you can't be negative. You can't, you can't, you know, hate what you're doing. Right. And you seemingly enjoy all of this. Well, I think it, it helps. I think it, seeing my arm puts people at ease. And like when I meet chefs, it's kind of like a disarming. <laughs> it disarms I, them. I knew you had a stockpile. That's I good. I just thought of that yeah. one. Um, and I think it, it I don't know, I, I almost think it loosens things up. Um, and, I can, and I can, of course, joke about it because you know when I meet someone for the first time that they're thinking, like, I wonder what happened. So I can use it as a kind of like something to joke about. And, and I don't know, it, it's like, it's like a, a, an immediately humbling thing, like to see uh, someone with a disability. You know, and and I think that helps people feel more comfortable around me. And I think, um, I think, I mean, fortunately, the chefs haven't questioned my ability to do the work. Um, and even if they were were to like to think that, I think they'd be scared to say it. Yeah, so that's helpful too. Well, you know, it, it's humbling having you here. You know, knowing you as a friend. And the only question I ever ask is, what will JJ do next? It's like that WWJD thing. <laughs> Well, what JJ will do next is have a, a baby at some point. Yeah. In August. And we will just love that Eat thing unconditionally. Heat it up. Yeah. Well, you got a, you got a built-in babysitter right here. Thank you. And I can't wait to see <laughs> all these books coming out in the you know, future and all the projects you and I, hopefully, will be collaborating yeah, on. I like that. JJ Good with an E, dot com. <laughs> Check it out. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>